We have uh, uh, Luke Small on today's podcast, and as well as we have uh, joined by Alan Ramsey with 4.0 Solutions, and we have Walker Reynolds back on the live stream. Good to have you back, Walker. I'm going to kick back. it over to you. Yeah, let me go ahead and turn the volume down here. All right, so um, how, how's it going, everybody? Sorry, I, as you can tell, I haven't been on the live Q&A for a few months. Um I'll be on the live Q&A um, more in 2022, probably, let's say, half the Q&As I'll probably uh, be a part of. But um, this week, we've got uh, Luke Small from Chakra. This is Luke's um, second visit on the on the Q&A. He, I think it was in April of, of 2021, Luke joined us. We had a conversation about value streams. Uh, one of the things that sort of came out of that um, that conversation was, um, Luke and his team at Chakra, they approach the value proposition for digital transformation um, from a higher from a higher level in the organization initially, but Im its implementation is pretty pretty similar. Where, whereas uh, part of what we teach at 4.0 Solutions is a lot about like bottom up integration, and we actually sell it from the bottom up. Um, generally, like specific use cases on the plant floor. One of the things that came out of that was we we learned a lot from Luke about how to um, how to approach the value proposition from more from an enterprise focus, but still solve problems from a bottom up use case um, approach. Right. So, and we talked talked to Luke last week, and we said, hey, you know, why don't we have you back on the podcast and let's talk about you know, what you guys have learned, what you learned in 2021, because obviously in industry, 2021 really was a transformative year for industry, right? Um, and what did you guys learn? What did we learn? Kind of what do we expect in 2022? And here we are. Um, but before we get started, all the housekeeping stuff, um, this month's sponsor is the uh, Digital Mastermind Program. So, um, and I'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, I've got a couple of industry announcements, one related to Canary Labs, another one related to uh, Tatsoft and uh, Frameworks, um, and we'll get all that at the end once uh, Luke and I get through our conversation. So with that, uh, Luke Small, welcome back to the Q&A. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me back on. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah, man. So why don't you uh, go ahead and just kind of update the community. What have you been up to? What, what, what did 2021 look like? for you what kind of what have you been doing <laughs> yeah well the first bit of big news uh i became a dad again so i had my little baby daughter isabella last july Congrats. um so hence the bags under the eyes from sleepless nights up until this day um so that's kind of personal life that's that's been crazy and and fun and covid babies are a blast um but the, the big project that we finished which i think the, the community will want to hear about uh, we just finished a huge two-year initiative with one of the largest industrial OEMs that'll re remain nameless um, for now. And what we had been doing with them was a corporate innovation program where we'd actually ring-fenced 25 of their people into an incubator model. That incubator actually reported into me and my firm for the duration of the project. And the goal was this is an equipment manufacturer was to move the equipment manufacturer from selling the actual equipment to selling it as a service or selling performance-based contracts. And we successfully did that over is almost a two and a half year project in total and all focused on this corporate innovation model where you talked about the balance between top down and bottom up. And, and really it was, how do you get that balance correct? And how do you get people out of their day jobs, out of their current thinking and moving and working in innovative ways. And that's where we had this um, yeah, incubator model where we had 25 people. I had the pleasure of managing them for almost two and a half years. And finishing that project up late last year has been a huge milestone for the business. So let's expand on that a little bit if you can. So the, you know, that's really digital transformation for an organization through leadership, right? Through, um, interventionist leadership, right? I mean, I guess if, if I'm making the term up off the fly, right? <laughs> but, it. but it, you know, you basically, we, we talk about it all the time that you have to have a, 
director of digital transformation. I'm going to talk about this in a little bit about one of the most one of the things that really stood out last year for us well, and our clients was more for our clients was that one of the one of the natural steps of digital transformation for industry is I think everyone is starting to realize that a some sort of corporate reorg is one of the steps, right? There are roles you're adding and then there's a reorganization you're you're really moving the dotted lines and moving the solid lines to include a director of digital transformation or someone who has who owns digital transformation in the organization and key management roles are reporting up through that person and and most of the time the way we approach it is we're going to try and identify the person who you already have who might be best suited and we'll train them up to take over that role and it sounds like what you did you obviously already know how to lead digital transformation what you did in this incubator model was may put you in that role and and then developed the 25 or so people that are going to reporting up through you and then i'm assuming part of that was you identifying who the potential leaders are in that group and all those sort of things is that correct i mean is that was that part of the approach yeah, you, you nailed it. Uh, okay. We had this, this beautiful graphic we showed the board one day where we had the org and we had the, and you've absolutely nailed it. The director of digital transformation was a role leading that organization. And when we had the, the shocker graphic come in and just click into place over that team and say, not, not only are we going to, they're going to report into us, they're going to work as if we're a startup, as if they're actually working for my firm. So the way in which we worked completely changed as well. But absolutely, it's identify that you need that need, excuse me, for a digital transformation leader. Mm -hmm. Director of digital transformation is is perfect. And then who are the people that you need? And we did soup to nuts, right? This was not just a factory initiative. This was a go-to-market initiative. So we had everybody from product development through through to marketing and business development reporting in through us, through that 25-person team and driving the complete transformation of that division. And this, we're talking billions of dollars here, right? This is a huge yeah. European OEM. And how did you, and so I'm assuming towards the end of that initiative, there's a time to where you're, you, Luke, is transitioning out as the, the leader, you know, the de facto leader in that group. And you're probably taking a diet, right? You're, it's time for the diaspora to take place, right? Take, take, some of those people that were working under you and have them go percolate out through the rest of the organization. And also you must've identified someone to take over for you. How did that, can you, can you, how did that transition take place? What was the mechanism for that? And how well did that go? Because that, that's the part that actually interests me is how did that transition take place and how well did it go seamlessly? Cause he said this, you sort of finished up a few months ago. So you've got, some uh, some time behind between that transition and now, right? Yeah, so so far so good, right? And uh, what we talked a lot about in the, in the early days of this program was when we leave and when we put the incubator back into the business, all of the change antibodies are going to pop up and try and kill that new initiative. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, we talk a lot about top down versus bottom up. We had done all of the top down and had the bottom up proof points to make sure that the change antibodies were somewhat limited. Mm -hmm. So, so far, so good. The change has gone well, or the, the re-entry back into the business has gone pretty well. Um, and then, yes, a huge part of kind of our CTQs or our deliverable was finding a replacement, right? It's it's too, it would be too easy for us just to take over that group right. and sit there and kind of run it forever. And just Chakra becomes almost like a badged employee of this large company mm -hmm. but we said no we really want to get get in get it done get out right in a reasonable time frame two years is pretty reasonable for the level of transformation yep. we're talking about and then make sure there's somebody suitable to run it so we were heavily involved in headhunting and getting that person into place to take over from us and they're they are very hard people to find yep. as you i could yeah. only imagine you know well yeah we're we're mostly developing because finding is so challenging. One of, one of the things we talk about with our clients is, you know, it's probably going to cost you less to identify the people internally who have the capability of being developed into this position 
and over a two-year period, let's do that. Because during that two-year period, we're going to be identifying use cases. We're going to be implementing an infrastructure. We're going to transform your infrastructure. We're going to define your digital strategy. We're going to start work on those use cases. We're going to do some integrations. We're going to solve some problems. We're going to real, reveal value. But And at that same time, we can that person that we've identified internally, person or persons, we can we can develop them through both our codified initiatives, which are mastermind, digital mastermind specifically, but then also just by working alongside our team in a in a scrum group that is tasked with digital transformation for the organization. And we, and what we found is that works that works really well. But I, I actually like this incubator model, this incubator concept. I mean, the, the one thing that jumps out at me is, wow, if we were to do that, which we don't, we actually preach all the time. We're not, we, we can't do that. We don't have the resources to do it. We, it's going to bind up resources for a significant amount of time. Did you use, obviously that wasn't the only client you worked with in the last two and a half years, right? You worked with other clients. So how did you manage time? And, and were there <laughs> other, and were there other resources at Chakra that you were leveraging or was it just Luke who was, you know? Um, you know, driving the bus. So, so the model, and we're still relatively new, uh, mm -hmm. but the model was to have two partners. So myself and my co-founder, both on the same project at any one time. Got it. And that would allow us change in and out. So I tried to do half of my time on the incubator and then half of my time with other clients and business development. Now you understand yeah. in your own role as a leader of a business, your time is ever expanding. It's extremely challenging to keep it locked into, you know, eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, yep. but relatively speaking, having two partners on the project, uh, charging the, the client fundamentally for one, right. Cause we're sharing the time worked out pretty well. Perfect. And then are you moving on? You have you moved on to the next large, uh, commitment? So I, no, so we're, we're still finding, still searching for someone this is this is a challenge we have right is we're talking digital transformation with a capital t right we're yeah. launching a new business model right so you got to find a number of companies who are willing to sign up for that number one and then number two the number of clients willing to sign up for an incubator model so we're finding we're doing onesie twosie stuff at the moment but what it has allowed us to do similar to what you do with your education side of your business is pars out all those lessons learned so they're more digestible for smaller engagements. Perfect. Man, Beer's question. This is actually a good question. So is it developing an incubator for only a specific client need? So OEM in this case, or do you have the same incubator in place to support multiple product uh, projects? I think I know the answer to that, but I'll let you. Yeah. So it's, it's customer or client specific. Yep. So we created the incubator on behalf of our client. Now, the conversation we've had with them is for future engagements. Let's imagine the incubator goes back into the organization. The core learnings, the core change that we've tried to drive has been accepted. The change antibodies have been relatively receptive to this new change. But then we want to go and do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. What we have talked about is setting up these transformation hubs. So imagine this is a European OEM. So imagine in Europe having a center of excellence where this type of thinking exists. And we've got a mixture of people from Chakra, core change agents from our client, and also people from local startups who are in the same space, all sharing a workspace and sharing ideas. That was an idea we had really much pre-COVID, yeah. it doesn't doesn't seem as viable now. But I think the thinking is still sound where you could take the incubator model and expand it into something more long-term. I, I love it. And I'll, I'll piggyback on that, that one of the things that we've been doing, I'd say for the last three years, is we had been looking for an opportunity to do something very similar, but, um, but where we're creating a transformation model, a transformation initiative for multiple organizations within the same supply chain. And I'm actually going to show an example of that. We, we've, we've finally found it, right? Accidentally, we found it. I'm going to talk about it in a little bit and get kind of get your take on it. Um, but um, I, I, 
the the thing so let me ask you this how are you jumping the resource hurdle right obviously that's got to be the biggest challenge right if you know now that you guys chakra's got this successful um incubator uh um this incubator model implemented you've you, we've you've demonstrated value you've provided value you've trained up 25 or so people within that organization now you're looking to find the new leader to bring that person in and you're absolutely correct i say this all the time people who can sex successfully lead a digital transformation initiative there's a hundred thousand jobs for every one person right now i mean there's just that covid made that a reality every organization every industrial organization on the planet needs to digitally transform if they started before the year 2000 so and there just aren't enough people who have the experience doing it. It's, you know, it's basically you're better off trying to train someone to do the role than to try to find somebody who's successfully done it. How are you managing that resource? So on your side, so for Chakra, how are you managing resources on your side? Because obviously your services are going to be far more in demand now that you've got this, this really big use case to hang your hat on. You already had several other implementations, but now you got this big successful one. How are you going to manage resources? How are you going to scale up? Is the plan to scale up at a, um, you know, is it the, is the plan to scale up at Chakra? Or are you going to just do more of the same? Is the focus to do more of the same? No, well, I think the focus is TBD, right? We've, we've got to, first of all, figure out how many other clients are willing to sign up for this size of model. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing, Walker, and I, I, I'm going to guess you find this as well, and I, I shouldn't give away probably both of our secrets, <laughs> but as hard as it is in theory to find these people, I also find when I get inside of organizations, there is so much overlooked talent. Oh, I agreed. Think, right? And yes. the, if you've actually led an initiative like this and you can actually park your ego and know how you did it and not just think it was all you. Right. And you can really identify the help and the resources that you need. And you can identify those skills in people and the less obvious people. I don't find it that hard to find people. Internally, right. internally with your, your clients, you mean? For, internally with the clients, but then right. in the broader market, right? Um, people that may be willing to work for Chakra, right? There's agreed, right? There's, and I forget which, which startup was it? There's a, there's a famous, technology startup that used to hire stand-up comedians as their sales team because they were sick in front of hire regular salespeople. But it's that kind of mindset, and it's the same mindset with even with data science, trying to find these people, watching how people work, watching the skill set they have, and really knowing the type of skill set that you need to lead transformation. Um, I don't find it that hard. And we're talking about people who probably are have huge gaps in their technology leadership, for example, just right. as, as one Titbit, right? Or one tip. The technology is easy, relatively speaking. You can you'll find people to lead the technology for you. People that understand people, people that understand change, people that are true ego or egoless leaders. Transformative leaders. Trans transformative leaders. Have the ability to be transformative leaders. That's the rare part. Yeah. And it's but it's inside of organizations, inside of people, if you know what you're looking for, I don't find it that hard to find people, believe it or not. Agreed, 100%. And, and, and part of our digital transformation maturity assessment, part of our DTMA, where if you look at, you know, part of what I'll talk about, what we did in 2021 was a lot of DTMAs for a lot of huge companies. And part of that process was identifying internal resources that should be part of your digital transformation team, right? And very few people, very few organizations, when they hire us, have that team already. They just have a maybe a Skunk Works initiative or something that's testing digitization or something. We we're identifying we're identifying the people internally who should be on that team, and 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 we're not focusing on technical skills. What we're really focusing on are innovators, um, people who are generally disagreeable but can follow a very agreeable transformative leader. Right, we're looking for those those talents, people who are constantly asking, "Why do we do it this way?" We're looking for that, like the trait that we're looking for is that the people who have that splinter in their mind, right? And then we sort of look at the cross-functional um, resources that we need, and we try to piece together a team and then fill in the gaps with external hires. But a huge P, I mean, you look there. There are a couple of guys probably on this call 
that were promoted through our recommendations this year. I mean, one guy went from, you know, floor level engineer to director of digital transformation. It was like a four step jump for him. Right. It was another guy went like three steps, you know, went directly under the CTO. Like, and um, to an- I want to touch on Manbeer's question here where he said the role of the director of digital transformation owns an incubator. So in, in, in Luke's model, yes, we, we don't use the incubator model. I love this model, by the way. We don't use it. We, we take a, a, a little bit of a different approach because the commitment of what Luke did is that's a massive commitment. I mean, you're owning it initially, right? And, and I mean, that's a full-time position. So they took two guys to split that full-time position. But the director of digital transformation that we have is generally um, we're we're the acting director of digital transformation when we're leading the maybe the first two years of the digital transformation journey for an organization. But we have a partner, a person we've identified at the organization who is the um, director of digital transformation that we are training up at the exact same time. So we've identified them during the initial phase, the initial two weeks DTMA. This is the person that we're going to train to be the, the director of digital transformation. And we train them up over the course of that two years and then hand off to them. We, you know, the, fir- the more phases we get into that, that, that first two years of DT, the more responsibility that director of digital transformation is taking on. And Manbeer, we have a org chart, a, a, an example org chart that we show to our clients. Um, and we say, hey, your org chart is going to look something like this, right? So your director of digital transformation is going to report directly into the CTO or CIO, depending upon who has which roles, right? And then, you know, IT, all the managers in IT are reporting dotted line or solid line through the director of digital transformation and and the digital transformation team, which is generally made up of a combination of OT and IT people, are reporting up through that exact same person. And it creates this cohesion of the OT and IT approaches to solving problems under one architecture, under one strategy, under one vision. And then we're eventually just handing that off. And and Luke, I'll let you speak to how that that transition happens for the director of digital transformation under the incubator model. How Because right now you're still trying to identify who that person's going to be, right? Uh, you're still trying to source no, we no, we we have found that person. We okay. we wouldn't have disengaged without finding that person. So that, that yeah. step one is we sign up early on in the contract that we're going to help you find that person. We're we're going to hire our own replacement. And like we talked about, if you know what you're doing and you've done this before, you see it. Yep, you see it, and and that's that's a skill and that's a deliverable and a, a value add that Shocker brings to these engagements. So so that was one the the uh, role. Afterwards, so this is interesting, and I don't think I'm going to say too much here because I haven't shared the company name. But what's interesting to remember is that these contracts or this engagement, we were launching a new business model. So they're actually selling something different in the market. And we had marketing and we had business development report into Chakra. So we managed all of the marketing of this new initiative for this client and all of the business development for this new initiative for this client, including traveling pre-COVID around the world, sitting in on meetings, listening to what their customer feedback was for these new business models we were launching. But the reason I say that is we also, we we are an outcome-based consulting firm. So we charge what we charge, but we also have a, or skin in the game after we leave to a point for two years after we leave, we get a share of the revenue for all these new initiatives that we helped launch. Uh Which means I'm on I'm on call, right? If if they need me, if there's something happening, it's baked into the contract, it's baked into our business model, the chakra business model, that it makes sense for me to be available. So we help find their replacement, we get them in situ, we do a handover for a couple of months, and then we are available as needed, within reason, right? And I've got a good relationship with the VP of operations who this ultimately was owned by. Um where we're available and on call to do the handover process. And then the other part of the question, um, Manbeer is doing a great job with the questions, by the way, but <laughs> is this only technical or is it people process or technology? So the, the poster famously behind me, if you can see it, is it's not about technology. Um, so this is a, about people, 
process and technology. Um, so yeah, we manage all of that and the strategy as well. So it's strategy, people, process, and technology. And we can tell some fun stories about the technology we actually used and how far down this overall journey we actually pushed any technical investment from the client side. But I'll, I'll pause there um, and see if that answered Manbir's question. Well, the other thing I'd like to say is I think you would agree that you can't you can't help an organization digitally transform unless it's about people, process, technology, and strategy. Like you can't break the four apart, right? They are they're interwoven with one another, right? They're they because what I would say is strategy it overlays people, process, and technology, and that getting defining what that digital strategy is first or at least outlining what it is first is is the first step prior to even engaging with people processes and leveraging technology to solve any problem right i, I think you would agree with that statement correct yes oh yeah it's, it's, there's, there's no way to do it otherwise otherwise you're just doing digitization you're just turning on technology which gets me to my next question which is uh, you know on your um so i i highly recommend everyone go to um, take a look at Luke's website. It's been updated a little bit since uh, last year, but go to chakra.expert. So C-H-A-K-R-A.expert. And on there, there's a couple of statements on there, right? So 75% of digital transformation initiatives fail, right? So do you do you care to share why you believe that's the case? What's, you know, what are the, what are the primary reasons digital transformation fails? And I, by the way, I agree with the number 100%. I actually think, it's just a hair higher. I think it's like 78% or something in their first iteration, like 78% of digital transformation initiatives fail. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Or I what think, have you observed the reasons? I mean, obviously you've experienced, you know why you've seen it. I know why. Much. And, and yeah. there's an interesting counterpoint to this, which I'll, I'll cover in a second. But the, the first point, the reason so many digital transformations fail is missed expectations, right? If we're talking digital transformation with a capital T. There's a reason we're all doing this today. There's a reason why we're on a live stream talking about digital transformation. And there's a history behind this whole digital transformation initiative. And it goes back to 2007, right? Where you've got the iPhone is released. You've got AWS comes out. Yep. Facebook, it's the first year they leave college campuses and become available to the general public. It's around about the time Hadoop comes out. And you've got that, that movement, that big data, analytics, mobility, cloud, and I'm probably missing one, um, kick off, right? And that starts a history or starts a chain reaction in motion that we can look back at from a history perspective and see the impact that that change had. And in, in the space of 10 years, which is relatively fast from an economic perspective, you had the top spots from a valuation perspective right? Yep. just change. It looked like almost overnight. And Warren, Warren yep. Buffett pointed it out, right? That the, the top companies by valuation were no longer the industrial companies that we all work for. They were right. all platform-based businesses, yep. right? That was yep. around 2017. Around about the same time, Mark Andreessen correctly predicts software is eating the world. Um, and that scares big traditional industrial companies that scares the GEs, it scares the Boeings, it scares all of the, the sort of dusty industrial companies that we all love and work for or work with. So everyone starts, we need to digitally transform, right? We need to look at the, the seismic economic level shift that's happening because of those digital technologies. It's playing out on Wall Street. We're, we're seeing a change that's happening and we need to respond to it. Now, if that's what drove us to digital transformation, and then you roll out Zoom or you roll out Teams and call it digital transformation, right. <laughs> you're in for a big shock, right? And that, that missed expectation between why we're responding to seismic level economic shifts versus what's what people are actually doing when it comes to digital transformation is why there's so much failure. That's point one for sure. And I'll take it one step further. So you've given the that the the five thousand foot right. It, it's a um, 
you know, a failure of expectations. Underneath that, what I say is digital transformation fails basically for three reasons and three reasons only. You've either, you have the wrong strategy, which goes to those expectations. Um, you go to, you pick the wrong technology to achieve the strategy, or you're using the wrong partners to leverage the technology to implement your strategy. It's one of those three reasons, right? Internally, if I go down to the hundred foot level, and I say, why does digital transformation fail actually within an organization? So say I've, I'm, I'm using an effective strategy, I'm, I'm using acceptable technology, and I've got decent partners. Why am I failing internally? And it's because I'm not setting expectations clearly enough. And what I go to, there's three other additional points that I say, well, the reason I'm not set, setting expectations reasonably enough, A, and being able to adjust, change those expectations based on what I learn, right? I, I talk about mm -hmm. this all the time that one of the one of the most important lessons that every organization has to learn going into digital transformation is you must remain agile. And I and I make this point that what you want today is a function of what you know today. And digital transformation is all about exponentially increasing the collective knowledge of your organization. And, and, that, and whether that's just a byproduct, whether it's a symptom or it's an actual goal, it's still a thing. The, the, the collective knowledge of the organization increases exponentially through this journey. And if what you want is a function of what you know, and what you know is going to increase exponentially, then it follows that what you want will change exponentially over the arc of this journey. And you must have a mechanism to adjust to those changing expectations. And so I've got these, these three things that I always point out. I say, digital transformation requires transformative leadership. So whether that's the director of digital transformation, whether that's the CTO or CIO who's saying, this is something we need to do and this technology is out there and here's how we can transform the business. Whether it's the CEO saying, I just went to, you know, somebody from McKenzie just called me and said we should digitally transform and I'm scared shitless because our competitors are doing it and we're not doing it. And hey, somebody digitally transform us, whether that's, it requires transformative leadership, right? Number two, legacy manufacturers, one of the things that they need to start doing yesterday is putting technologists in charge of their organizations. So the vast majority of people who are running manufacturers and industry, they're not technologists. In fact, they're ignorant to technology. Now, and now they don't need to know the technology inside and out, but they need to understand the potential of the technology at better than just a strategic level. So if you look, you know, we've been working with chemical companies lately and a, a couple of different chemical companies, the, some that make ink, some that make pigments, some that make, you know, acetone, whatever. And one of the things that stands out, they are transforming so much faster than the other discrete manufacturers we work with. And if you compare them to, say, the automotive manufacturers we work with, the chemical companies are moving so much faster. And they're, and they're being so much more successful. And we asked ourselves as an organization, why is that? Why are they so much more successful? So we started looking at who runs those companies. Well, they're all chemical engineers. Literally every position is a chemical engineer. And they said that, that's the key point, right? Is yep. you said technologist, but engineers by nature are technologists. That's technology right. can be CNC technology. It can be material science. It can be you, you name it. It doesn't have to be bits and bytes, but if you've got that mindset, if, if you're a, an engineer at heart, right. Yes. And this is people are arguing, this is what happened at Boeing, right? The engineers lost their seat at the table and we, we saw the kind of quality issues that have, that have popped up. Yep. Right. Um, that's a big difference, and it is. It's, it's engineers in in the hot seat makes a difference, and they are technology inclined. They'll understand the bits and bytes if you guys explain it to them correctly. Right. They'll get yeah. it. Or you give them the not... time to you give them the time to do their own homework. Also, they will. They'll come yep. back. They'll come back a hundred times more fluent in the technology you just talked about last week. In one week, if you just give them the time to do their homework. I mean. Right. Exactly. I have, exactly. I have a that, question. That, oh, go ahead, Zach. Yeah, I was. I liked what you said earlier, Luke, about the uh, the change antibodies. I love yeah. the term. What I what, what love makes that a term. change? What makes a change antibody, and how do you how do you mitigate those? And um, 
you know, is that like someone who's just not an engineer or are there engineers that are change antibodies and how do you mitigate? I think there are like, so who are they? Engineers and, that are change antibodies. <laughs> so yes. how do you mitigate that uh, when you're doing this? Yeah. So first of all, you want to make sure they're, they're not on the team. Um, sometimes <laughs> hey, no, he's right. He's right. right. Um, now, I, had, I heard an interesting phrase, and I think your audience won't mind if, if, if I get a, ever use this phrase, but there's some people that you want pissing into your team versus pissing out of your team. <laughs> <laughs> right? I like it a lot. So there are certain change antibodies that you'll actually bring in, right? Probably, probably the nicer way to say it is keep your enemies close, right? But um, Or closer. But um, yes, so first of all, they can be engineers. There are certain change antibodies that you'll actually want to hear their opinion as early as possible. So you bring them into your team, right? 100. 100%. Yep. Um, but then, unfortunately, I think there's, there's, there's probably just two schools of thought on this. There are personality types, right, that you've got to allow for. And I think this is often the challenge of innovators. And embrace. Is, and embrace. Right. Allow, allow for and embrace those personalities. I know where you're going here. I know exactly where you're going here. So, so first of all, the type of people that you would generally get onto your team, if, if it was my way, right, would be highly driven people, highly influential people, probably not massively worried about the details, just hard charging, love change, love technology, go, go, go. Yep. Now, it's too easy to fill your ranks with those kind of people and not complement that with the types of people who are going to challenge you and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, I'm, I'm a high compliance type person, for example, right? You need an Alan Ramsey for every Zach. That's right. You need an Alan. We, we just got done talking about this with Alan two weeks ago. Alan, what is your role in our organization? Your role is to tell us when we're wrong. That's literally, literally said to him. It's your job to challenge what we're saying. And you're, it's your job to say, why is it? Why do we believe that? Why do we do it that way? Why haven't we codified this? Why have we codified that? The exact we call it building dynamic teams, but I didn't mean to cut you off. But go ahead, Luke, please. No, that that that's perfect, and that that makes sense. Is you, you you for every for every Zach, you need an Alan, right? That's, that's right. And if you can get that right early on and know the personality differences, the the, the personality spectrum that you need on your team, mm -hmm. it's much easier to dodge and weave to change antibodies when you get back in. Um, unfortunately, there are they still exist, and the, the people. I find personally the hardest to watch out for are the folks that are cruising close to uh, we we say it the people who have no incentive in the long term of the for the in the long term viability of the organization that's what we say so whether that's the person 5 years from retirement or and this isn't all people who are 5 years from retirement but we're there are certain people we're looking for that we want to stay away from and it's the people who don't have a vested interest or at least they don't believe they have a vested interest in the long-term viability of the organization, or even worse, they're apathetic to the long-term viability of the organization. Yeah, uh, we got a couple good questions come in. Um, I want to go. I want to touch on Dowdell. What Dowdell said, real quick, yeah, before you get to one. that question. So, uh, Michael Dowdell, one hundred percent agree with you, man. Slap on the back here. The problem with U.S. industry, beginning the, with the Industrial Revolution until the 1960s, he's, he's talking about the Second Industrial Revolution, um, until the 1960s, is that corporations were run by engineers and technical people. Starting in the 1970s with the Third Industrial Revolution, it really shifted to MBAs. And why? Because it, it had to do with allocation of resources. They put MBAs in to focus on moving the resources around to try and capture efficiencies that way, lower labor, et cetera, et cetera. Totally agree, uh, Michael Daldell, 100%. What has to the, the companies who are most successful are the companies who are moving back towards leadership, technology leadership. And it, I mean, just if you look at, mm. you know, with Sandy Monroe, our interview with Sandy Monroe, we were talking about why is Tesla so awesome? And Sandy says, well, it's, it's leadership. And it had nothing to do with the fact that Elon Musk is the greatest leader on the planet. It's not that. It's that he knows everyone, he knows the technology, he knows everyone's role, and he's a transformative leader. And so he knows how to pick the, the right personality for the right problem. Just like when he wanted Tesla.com, he said, we, this guy owns Tesla.com, give us the nicest guy. I want the guy who no one ever gets pissed off at in this plant and go have him 
camp out on that guy's porch until and don't take no for an answer. You know, that's part about being a transformative leader in, in building dynamic teams. So, yes, 100% doubt out. Michael and then, had a good point about the um, they're not paying enough. The the accountants well, the, and HR are not paying the technologists enough well, that, and they end up that's leaving. The, that's the problem is that the the, the classic company is, is, is struggling. And here's why. Because the technologists you need is very expensive right now because there's 100,000 jobs for every one of them. And I'm, that's hyperbole, obviously. But it's, it's meant to illustrate the point that the person you're going to bring in to lead your digital transformation initiative is going to make more money than all of your general managers. Otherwise, you didn't hire the right person. Okay, They're going to make more money than the general manager. They're going to make more money than the regional manager. They're going to make... And, and HR people who look at that disparity, they say, we're not, we can't reasonably pay this person twice what we're paying the person to run the entire facility. And, but by the way, that isn't a problem in an organization that's run by technical leaders because they understand, and this is where Luke talks about this, you know, you're able, not only are you able to identify the skills required, okay, so not only are you able to identify the skills the people who have the traits of a transformative digital transformation director, okay? If you do this, you can identify those people. You can see them. It's just like uh, the best, the best, uh, what is it? The best policeman is a person who used to be a criminal, right? It's, it, it, you know, they, the, the, the casinos hire the guy who used to rip the casino off mm -hmm. to protect the casino, right? It's the same thing. When you've helped organizations successfully digitally transform, you have a you have a um, a perspective other people don't have, and mm -hmm. therefore, when you look at people, you can identify traits that they have that align with what is needed to lead these initiatives. Right. One last thing I want to um, Phil Saboa. This is a good question that I want uh, Luke like Luke to answer, which is how do you measure failure? Is it the budget ran out? It's a decrease of efficiency efficiency. If you improve the system by 30%, is that 30% successful? What I would say before Luke chimes in here is failure is not something you define. It's something you manage. So failure is a, is for me, is, is uh, when I didn't meet a metric I established before early on that was our standard for success. But for executives, for your customer, you may have provided three times the value they expected, but if you didn't deliver what they thought they were getting, then you failed. And, 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 that, and that works for some, that, that is the response of some leaders. But I'm going to go ahead and let Luke talk about how he measures failure. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a great question. And it was actually the second point when we talked about the 75% of digital transformations fail or 78%, which is yep. an even scarier number. Um, I think it was Rick Bellotta, right, friend of friend of your show, um, who made the point this morning on LinkedIn that why are we so scared of that number? Right? These this is big, hairy, scary stuff, and we should be okay to fail. Yep. I don't know if everyone has the appetite for seventy five or seventy eight percent, but why are we afraid of that? Why why is it not okay to fail? Um, and I think that's the first thing to get into everyone's heads is we will fail. And it's managing through those failures and being able to take the lessons learned out that is key to succeeding. Now, let's flip it on its head. How do we measure success? Do we need new ways of measuring success so that we can track the failures and pivot when we need to? And the answer is yes. And that's one of the first conversations we have with our clients is we sit down with the VP of finance or the CFO and we talk about ROI and how ROI is a flow metric. Yeah. Or even just, just just wrong off the bat, right? Um, we may not see ROI in your classic sense for two years, for two and a half years. We're launching a whole new business model, right? But thankfully, thanks to clever social media marketing, we can track success way earlier than we see ROI. So we teach companies things like conversion rates, uh -huh. right? You guys do a great job of this in your own business, yep. but we have an idea. So this is the, the three-step model of Chakra is prove the idea, prove the business model, prove the scale. So an idea might be a predictive analytic, right? And based on old school technology, like a, a .NET system running a SQL database, 
with a bit of Python glommed on to do some data analytics. Perfect. Were you able to predict, for example, remaining useful life of an asset? Yes. Cool. Well, let's pause the tech for a second and let's take that analytic to market. And I don't, I don't mean sell the analytic, I mean sell the outcome of what that does. Mm. When I say take it to market, let's go run some social media campaigns and see if people actually care. Right. Right. That's it's genius. That's where you can catch failure earlier. And this, this was actually, this was a point that Rick Blotter made this morning on LinkedIn. It's almost like right first time in manufacturing. You want to catch that failure as early as possible in your process. So you're not adding value to a failure, right? Because that's, that sucks. And that's the same in manufacturing. You want to add material or add cost or add value to a defective part, catch it, either get it right first time or catch it as early in, as you can in the process. And that's, what we allow companies to do is by getting their ideas out there, which is man, oh man, that is so uncomfortable for these engineers who are used to waiting years and having everything perfect and then launching and hoping everyone buys it to, no, it's kind of half baked, right? It's, it's right. duct tape and gaming wire. It's, it's .NET and, and SQL and a bit of Python glommed on. It barely works remote, but we, we like, we just, we were getting data over email, right? We, we call it FTP because it's any better than email, but we were getting data over email plugging it into a remote instance of the exact same, it was like a legacy SCADA system or SCADA system since it was in the UK and sticking on some additional uh, data analytics via Python. But get it into the market. Let's, do not talk about the technology. We're not going to go and tell them that we're selling the analytic or selling all this cool stuff. We're going to go and talk to them about selling the outcomes of that. And you can go have that conversation either via social media or in person really early in the process. And that's the, Long-winded answer is just trying to catch that, that failure as early as possible so you're not adding value to it later on. Excellent. A perfect answer. Um, I want to ask you a quick thing because we've got about 15 minutes and I want to touch on two things. Um, you know, so since we last met in April, right, obviously, you know, for us, what we observed was um, – between April and now for our clients and the projects that we've worked on, the organizations that we've consulted with, if there's anything that I've learned um, since you and I last spoke, it's that the level of fluency in the market for the value of digital transformation has increased exponentially. That is, the and, and, and another way to frame that is the people that we talk to now, the, the leaders of organizations who are reaching out to us for help, understand their problems a lot better than they did a year and a half ago before April, you know, or, or at a minimum pre COVID the fluency within the market is, is becoming better. Now there's a lot of gaps in their knowledge, their capability, um, the direction, the understanding of the technology, but at a minimum, they understand their immediate problems. They have a much higher level of fluency and they understand you know, what digital transformation is and isn't a little better here now than they did in April. That's one thing that has really stood out to me. Number two, another thing that's really stood out is how scared industry really is right now. How um, scared, um, and when I say industry, I mean manufacturing, but I, I need to group in, you know, mining and, and mm. you know, chemical batch processing and stuff, right? But the... How, just how scared they are about the future. And, and if I were going to sum that up into one statement, it is this. How are we going to recruit and retain the employee of the future? So if you look at that fear, that fear is an extension of that one statement. How are we going to recruit and retain the employee of the future? Those are the things that have stood out for me. But for you, what it, what is chakra seen since since we talk in the last since last April, what have you seen? What are your major observations um, in our industry, you and your clients since that time? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. So if you go back to my history lesson, around 2016, we kicked off what I call the first wave of digital transformation, which is industrial companies digitizing and calling it done or calling it good. And industrial automation vendors rebranding everything as industrial IoT and calling it good. Yeah, just slapping a label on. Yep. <laughs> S same wine, new label, or same wine, new bottle. Yep. I was expecting around 2020, around 2019, 
that we would see the second wave of digital transformation where the tough questions will be asked around the real value of everything we're doing and getting back to the seismic level shifts in the economy that I mentioned. COVID delayed that for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's probably fair. I mean, I'm, I'm hard on Teams and I'm hard on Zoom. But in reality, it was transformative that we all managed to keep our jobs. Well, excuse me, that's a little bit elitist of me. Most people managed to keep their jobs, right? If you're lucky enough to be able to go and work remote, not everyone had that luxury, unfortunately. But for a, a lot of us, it was transformative, that rollout of Teams, that rollout of Zoom. Even live streams like this, right? People have been able to get educated and smarter by just tuning into stuff and not traveling, not going to conferences. So there was a, a almost a backlog of work that needed to be done to get us kind of through COVID. And now we're kicking into the second wave of digital transformation where companies are smarter. They're, they're not going to fall for, I've taken industrial automation, an industrial automation stack and called it IoT. They're not going to fall for that. And the reason they're not going to fall for it is not because they're smarter technology, technologically wise, that word, thank you. It's because they're going to ask you about the outcomes and why is this different than what we tried to do 10 years ago or five years ago. So that's, that's huge. And I'm pretty pumped about because companies are more fluent, like you mentioned, and they're asking the right questions. It's going to force all of us in the market, the consultants, the integrators, the vendors to do things differently and deliver in new ways. And I think it's an exciting time that I predicted was going to happen around 20, 19, 2020, the second wave of digital transformation, almost like a digital transformation renaissance. Uh-huh. It's going to kick off now, I think. And we've got enough stuff that hurt us through COVID, like the supply chain issues, that people know the right questions to ask. And we're all going to have to step up our game and deliver in new ways. Out, perfect answer. Couldn't possibly, couldn't agree with you more. I want to touch on one thing that you touched on that. It made me think about this, that I, I've been talking about more and more with people um, is state siding operations. So one of the things that's going to happen um, as a function of COVID, we are in a post COVID world. Um, the, the pandemic, you know, the, the fear of pandemic, global pandemic is no longer, um, you know, it's, it's no longer the lore of just the paranoid. Okay. It's, you know, we live in a post-pandemic world. The 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 things that were we were being warned about have come true, and now business leaders and thinkers and decision makers are aware that these are this is a real risk, and it's a risk we have to mitigate. So, something that is naturally going to happen is that organizations are going to be priced in to bringing their manufacturing operations much closer to their intelligence centers. So where the brain trust exists, organizations are going to be far more priced in to bringing manufacturing operations closer to their brain trust so that disruptions in supply chain can be mitigated where they can be mitigated reasonably. Okay. That's one of the things that keeps standing out to me. And number two, I want to touch on this how you know if companies are freaking out about how are they going to recruit and retain the employee of the future the answer really is quite simple and it is a value add of digital transformation okay and it's a key value add and that is you create the type of place that the employee of the future wants to work okay and what does that look like okay uh, you know we we've hired a bunch of people here at Intellic and 4.0 solutions over the last few months i think we um at at least six to eight people or something. And, and I mean, to the point where I haven't even had a chance to meet everybody that we've added and, um, or meet them face to face. And we have a bunch of Gen Zers and millennials who we've joined, who have joined the company. And we, and we're, we're talking about, you know, who they are and what they believe. And one of the things that stands out with the, about these young folks who are eventually going to make up your workforce is that they are used to solving their own problems. Okay, they are they their first step whenever they face any problem is not to get on the phone and it's not to look at a user manual. It's not to find the user manual or get on the phone. It is to use technology to find the exact answer 
to their exact problem and then try to implement the solution themselves. Okay? You have your employees don't want a bigger cafeteria and they don't want video game, you know, they don't want video game stations, you know, in the break room. What they want is an environment where they can solve their own problems, an environment that more closely mirrors what they have in their everyday life. And this brings me to my last point, which is the idea that work and home are different things is a dead idea. Part of the value of technology is that you can always be at home and you can always be at work. And it naturally follows that you are going to want your home values, your home mission, your home environment to more it closely mirror what you have at work. They need to be they need to look very very similar. And so when we're looking to recruit the employee of the future, we have to be thinking about what is it that the employee of the future expects. Okay? And what they expect is a, to live in a to to live in an ecosystem, have access to an ecosystem where they can solve their own problems. And if there and if there's anything that we've done where we're we're surveying young people, like why did you, you know, you know, our, our clients will give us a list of the people who came and went, you know, the Gen Zers and, and the millennials who came and went, and they'll give us a list of maybe ten people that we can call. Hey, why did you quit? You know, what was the reason you left? Do you mind sharing that with us? And it all boils down to the exact same thing. I felt like I was working in a plant that was built in the 1930s. I feel like I went to my grandfather's job, and I don't want to work at my grandfather's job. I don't. I don't want my grandfather's job. I want. That's why companies like Tesla are able to retain, re- recruit, and retain Gen Zers and Millennials, and other Volkswagen can, um, Amazon can, but other organizations can't. Right. And I, I just I wanted to make sure I touched on that point. Um, and, and I think, Walker, yeah, just to add to that, because I, I think it would be miss of us not to touch on diversity, inclusion and equity coming out of last year. And I think when you talk about those millennials, you talk about those Gen Zers and the environment they want to be in. They want to be in diverse, equitable environments and they want to be surrounded by people that bring diversity of thought, diversity of leadership, equity of leadership. And I think it's it gives us hope for the future that Gen Z especially are demanding this. Leadership are now talking about if 2021 drove that level of focus around diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity. And it makes me pretty excited for the types of companies that I'm going to go work for or work with and see the level of uh, change and diversity that's inside these organizations. And it's a huge part of that environment that you mentioned. And it's a huge part of bringing work and life closer together. Agreed. And I and the way we describe that, instead of diversity, inclusion, and equity, we call it mission and values. That organiz- the, the Gen Zers and the millennials, they are mission and value driven. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves, and they want that thing to be moral. They, I mean, morality is a very important thing to the to to that um, generation. And you know, I talk about all the time that it, it, it's an intellectual shortcut to 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 blame Gen Zers and millennials as just they're entitled they all got you know ribbons you know they all got uh, participation awards you know they're entitled helicopter parents all that stuff I think it's an intellectual shortcut to do that I think I agree with you there is an incredible amount of value that can be tapped into with that generation we were just talking about this morning imagine what will happen I mean you look at the unemployment rate in that group right it's just massive Right. And, uh, you know, especially post COVID. And if you um, imagine what it means for the the global economy, once industry figures out how to tap into their productivity, imagine what it will actually mean. Right. Not that their productivity replaces the productivity of some person in a much later generation when they add to the overall productivity of our global economy. I mean, it'll have a profound impact on opportunity um, for, um, you know, those that they want to help, right? Um, la- last thing I wanted to touch on um, is kind of what we're doing. There's a c- sort of an exciting thing that we're doing that um, we have an opportunity. We have three clients that we worked with in the last year. One of them we've been working with over the last couple of years. 
but we got three clients that are all links in the same supply chain. All right. So what we have is a chemical company that makes inks and pigments and they sell those inks and pigments to a flexible packaging company that makes packaging um, for like food and beverage companies. And that flexible catch, cap, packaging company sells packaging to a, a fame, a, a, you know, one of the biggest sugar water manufacturers on the planet. And all three of those companies are our clients and all three of them we have worked to digitally transform. And we only recently found out that they are links in the same supply chain and they are linear. And so in 2022, we have an opportunity to integrate those three companies together in a co using common technology. We have a chance. What we're going to be doing is connecting all three of those companies together to share data and information back and forth between those three companies. Okay. And I think it's a super exciting opportunity to demonstrate, um, you know, the supply chain of the future. We call it supply chain 4.0 and how digital transformation for manufacturers and industry eventually leads to taking my digital ecosystem and integrating it into a digital supply chain. And we hope to present that to the, you know, to the masses, you know, probably towards the end of 2022. Um, and this is, by the way, and the reason I bring it up in this call with Luke here is this is something we knew was going to come up, come down the pike. And it wasn't something we really started talking about until I met with Luke last year in April. It was something that sort of, you know, there were things that he said in that present in his, our initial talk that really told me, Hey, I, I think we're closer to being able to make that a reality than I thought. Um, and it, it had it more to do with his go to market strategy and some of the you know, the technologies that they're using. And so a, go ahead, Zach. Yeah, I have a question. Now that that those companies are working together, how do you see the actual business relationships changing now that they're digitally connected and moving maybe towards more like what Luke's talking about, like platform, uh, you know, changing the business model, business as a service model. Do you see that happening? And then, um, you know, Luke, if you have anything you want to add to that. So do, do, you, gonna... do you understand the question? I, I understand what you're getting at in terms of business as a service or manufacturing or OEM as a service. As that, yeah. really, right. But the we are still in the in the initial phases of getting the three companies connected and on board for I mean, they're all on board. They've all said yes, we want to do this. Um, they've all said yes. We're still working out all the contractual stuff, you know, to make it which data is going to be shared and you know and how is it going to be shared, right? Um Richard Blanchett, B2MML for B2B information exchange. No, it actually will be through an MQTT broker unified namespace. Uh, B2MLL is how each of those companies share data from their ERP systems into an MQTT broker namespace. But the way that they will be sharing data with one another is through a broker namespace, basically taking their unified namespaces from their MQTT brokers and publishing them into a common broker namespace that all three of them can share from. And then we're, we're working on all the, you know, um, naming topology and all that kind of stuff right now. So I suspect we will start initial integration probably in April or May. And then we'll, you know, we'll have a better idea on how valuable this data, this data is for these organizations. But I, what I would say is this, the initial conversations we had with them, we just asked them, um, three questions. You know, what's the number one complaint that customers give you about your products? Which data of yours would be valuable to your customers? Which data do you have that you think would be valuable to your customers? And which data does your customers have that you believe would be valuable to you? And our focus is around those three questions and populating the namespace with that kind of data. But I, I just wanted to say, we this is going to happen. We have three companies. They've all been transformed. They're all our clients. And they're all customers of one another in a, in a in a linear supply chain, and we're going to have an opportunity to present this value to the world. And so we're kind of kind of excited about it. But um, Luke, Thanks, I'm, I'm gonna I, I wanted to present that to you because I I actually think I want to consult with you a little bit about our approach to presenting the value proposition right uh, at, at scale to these organizations. Right now, right? the the business relationships are what have been in place for many many years, and with the new ecosystem there's a there's probably a new business model that could come along with that which is no question know, 
Luke's. No question. And that, that, that's the beauty of it, right? And yeah, happy happy to help. We could do a whole other live stream just on on that. I, yeah. I think the interesting takeaway to try and boil this down for, for folks today, you mentioned it's a linear supply chain today. Yep. Could we make it a circular supply chain tomorrow based on this data? And I'm going to argue that you will be able to make it into an actual circular supply chain where that there's first of all there's going to be data feedback loops but then is, is there better raw material feedback loops is there less waste going down this linear supply chain that in itself makes it circular mm-hmm. right and if folks want to learn more about supply chain 4.0 or circular supply chains i'm going to plug a very good friend of mine's book great book have you seen this one i have seen it somebody actually mailed me a copy of it it was like oh, a great. Gi- yeah. it was a gift sent to me yeah so Deborah Dull, author, good friend of mine, uh, absolute circular economy genius. You can see I've used it well because it's covered in dust and junk. <laughs> but um, I think there's huge opportunity as we connect these supply chains with, from a digital perspective that the business model can shift. And the, the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to be incentivized to not push waste down a linear supply chain. Agreed. Back to that that comment earlier, right, about don't add value to waste, don't add value to defects. As you start to connect these these factories and suppliers, we're going to hold back waste. And that's going to be huge, let alone then get into fancy stuff about, okay, well, could you use that waste somewhere else? Or is there a, a, another party, right? The famous story of the chickpea factory that figured out they could use their water to make mayonnaise. And it was a chickpea factory and a vegan mayonnaise factory side by side. Um. These are the kind of things that we can do when we start to link up these supply chains and share data in new interesting ways. So I'm pretty excited by it. And I actually I, I agree 100%. And I, I would say the circular supply chain, or we, we call it hub and spoke supply chain, but it's the same thing. It's a different term, but it means the exact same thing. I do love Deborah's book. A lot of the concepts I talk about it are she has outlined in her book and and I and I got some of them from her where it was like, wow, light bulb, boom. You know, it was... Uh, so Zach, when we the other thing I want to do is link do, link her book in the description, please, um, okay. since we did touch on it here. And um, with with that, I, I know we're a couple minutes older. Luke, I definitely don't want to wait eight eight or nine months, ten months um, between our next visit. Maybe six months down the road or whatever, we do this again. And I definitely want to talk to you a little bit more about roping you in and talking about the value proposition for this integration. But I I want to on behalf of the community and and uh, you know the um, you know, our team here, I appreciate you jumping on with us. It was, this was a, a great discussion. I hope you agree. Thanks so much. Yeah, Luke. no, yeah. always, always a pleasure. And let's, yeah, as soon as you guys want me back on, I'll, I'll make myself available. And then, yeah, let's, oh, let's do a quick brainstorm quick, on the And quick plug right. for your, uh, with uh, Henry and, uh, is it yes. Clarify.io? Yeah. You have, you're doing a show tomorrow with Henry. Um, so where can we view that? So I'll, I'll get a link out to everyone. We can share it afterwards. I'll make sure it's right. up on the community. Um, but it's okay. clarify.io. And we're going to call a little bit of BS back to this history lesson on rebranding everything as industrial IoT. It's, we're we're going to call out a little bit and see what we can find. And also, I would recommend you guys take a look at your um, Luke's talk with Manny. Um, if you, yes. Zach, will you link that one in too also? Yeah, I'll put uh, the I, link I love to that the conversation. And- our original right below our original podcast from last year all down in the description so thanks so uh, much for joining luke and thank you everyone for watching yeah everyone huge, it, it, huge was, it was good, it was good it was good to be back um i'll probably be on week after next i'm closing on a house next tuesday so i definitely will not be on then but i'll probably be on the q a in two weeks appreciate everyone luke again thank you brother we'll talk to you soon